Hebrews chapter 7. He's better than you think. Huh? Jesus is better. That's the theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is superior. He's better than anything that this world might tempt to distract you with. Uh, that you would put your hope and your affection and your source of joy, your source of rest. Man, the world has got a plethora of, uh, of all kinds of concoctions ready for you tonight to just go out and, and try to find joy and peace and hope. And you know what? They all fall short in comparison to Jesus. And that's essentially what we're looking at. In Hebrews chapter 7 tonight, is that theme just continues on. Remember the story of a little girl who came home from Sunday school and said, Mom, God can do anything. He can work miracles with his left hand. And he heals with his left hand. And he holds us close with his left hand. And the mother was thrilled that her little girl was so excited with God, but couldn't quite understand her fixation with God's left hand. And so she said, honey, God can also use his right hand, you know. But the little girl shook her head. She was so sure of herself. No, mommy, God can't. We learned in Sunday school that Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God. This little girl was slightly confused. Come on, Shelby. A little bit of props. Okay. This little girl was slightly confused. Jesus is not sitting on the right hand of God, okay? Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 7 and 8 teach us that when Jesus resurrected and 40 days later he ascended into heaven, we read in Acts chapter 1, he had this glorious homecoming, something that we could never understand on this side of eternity, but he was welcomed back into heaven as the victorious son, as the second Adam who didn't bomb, who didn't sin, but who was obedient unto death, even the death on the cross, and rose again in, in victory and in power and in glory, and then ascended into heaven as he came into the throne room of God with a great pomp and great circumstance he sat down at the right hand of God in a, in a place of incredible glory and in a place of incredible function and office. He is there today as our high priest. He ever lives to make intercession, we see in Hebrews chapter 7 tonight. Now the temple priests of the Old Testament were from the family of Levi. From the family of Levi. But we know from the New Testament that Jesus is our priest and he was from the family of Judah. What the what is what the Jews were thinking. How is that supposed to work out? How could Jesus ever be my priest, a Jewish Christian would say, when he's from a whole different tribe than the law of Moses commands the priest is to be from? Chapters 5 through 10 in Hebrews are all about the priesthood of Jesus, that Jesus' priesthood is greater than that of Aaron, greater than that of Levi. 
The qualifications were set for us in chapter 5 and compared. And the author of, of, of Hebrews was about to expound upon this glorious doctrinal truth of the priesthood of Jesus. But as he was writing it, discernment from the Holy Spirit told him, you know what, these Hebrew readers, they're not ready for this. They're not ready for something this deep, this intense. And so the writer then goes on for a whole chapter to warn the Hebrew readers and to admonish them that they were dull of hearing. They were lazy. They were sluggish. They were in a place that, man, they were still learning the ABCs of the Christian faith when they should be teaching other people. They should be making disciples. And he says, man, I'm about to get into something that's going to rock your socks, blow your mind. I got to stop. I got to stop. You're not ready to hear it. You're not ready to hear it. And he goes on for a chapter warning them and exhorting them towards maturity in Christ. To grow, to not just need milk, but to begin to develop teeth and chew on solid food, the word of God. And, and it's something that comes through experience and through practice where you're able to discern good from bad, Hebrews chapters uh, 5 and 6 tell us. And so he warns them that they were in a dangerous place. And you'll remember the whole theme of Hebrews, so, so what, Jesus is better. He's telling them Jesus is better because these were Jewish Christians who were just being beat up, chewed up, and spit out by the world around them. They were persecuted for following this guy that died on a tree outside of the Jerusalem gates. And they were being ridiculed, mocked. They were being kicked out of their homes. They were being disowned. A lot of you know this already. You could teach it as well as I could, or probably better. And they were sick and tired of it. They were just, they were worn out and exhausted. And so they were thinking, they were considering of going back to Judaism, going back to just a tangible, look, we've got a temple here. It's just so glorious. Josephus says that you could see it, it from miles around. Just the glory was something spoken of throughout the whole earth. We've got the priests, and they've got their garments on with the little bells on the bottom. We've got the smoke from the sacrifice coming up. And man, that just seems so much more tangible and something that, I, that I'd that be you know, willing to stake my life on than, than you know, what the apostles were preaching, the gospel of Jesus of Galilee. And man, it almost sounds better, doesn't it? It almost sounds like we should go back. And this author goes, whoa, 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 don't do that. Jesus is better than any of the prophets you ever had in the Old Testament. Jesus is better than any of the angels that you ever just were thrilled about and heard about as kids. Jesus is better than Moses. I mean, you love Moses? Jesus built Moses. He's better than the priesthood, and that's where we find ourselves. He's better than the priesthood. He's going to go on to say he's better than the tabernacle. He's better than the covenants. He's better than the sacrifices. He's better than, he's better than, he's better than, he's better than. Okay? And with all that being said... He said, let me tell you why his priesthood is better. I want to tell you about this guy called Melchizedek. Oh gosh, you're just not ready. And so for a chapter, there's a parenthesis where he warns them and encourages them to grow up, to chew on solid food, to get ready for this because Jewish Christians, it's going to rock your socks. Gentile Christians here in Prineville, I pray that it'll rock your socks tonight. I pray that you would have the capacity to understand what the argument is here 
in chapter five, uh, chapter um, seven, excuse me. But we know from Hebrews chapter five, there are certain qualifications laid out for a high priest. He wasn't someone that just took that upon himself. He was appointed by God. It was something that was a familial duty. He was someone that was supposed to represent man to God and God to man. He was a bridge. He was a mediator. He was a guy that would have to make sacrifices for himself before he went into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifices for the people. The reason being, as he's sacrificing for himself and killing an animal and watching blood gush out, he goes, my sin did that. And you know what? All of these people's, their sin, it's going to do this to this animal. And Hebrews 5 tells us that causes him to have compassion, that he's not too severe on people. He's a compassionate high priest. He's suffered. He can reckon with the people and understand where they're at. Those qualifications that were laid out that we studied two weeks ago, we see are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And at the end of that parenthetical chapter of an exhortation towards maturity, we come to Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. And I want to read this real quick. We didn't really get to it last week. Perhaps we could touch on it slightly tonight, but we've got a lot to go over. But it says this, Hebrews 6, 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, that's unchanging things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we might have strong comfort and consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us. Even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In that big warning chapter, uh, it, it gets to a place where people could doubt their salvation, or maybe they've lost their salvation, or maybe they've left their salvation. But the end of chapter six tells us, you know what? When you've put your faith upon the great high priest, he is someone who is an anchor for your soul. He is someone that gives you hope and assurance, someone that you can take to the bank. He is someone who's made promises. The promise he made to Abraham, he swore by himself. I can't swear on anyone greater by myself. You know, you've probably heard the phrase, like, I swear by great Odin's beard or by Odin's raven. I think it's Odin, right? Odin, this weird uh, German god who had a beard and a raven, and people would swear by that. Or I'll swear by my grandma's grave, you know? Well, God's like, I got nothing bigger to swear on, so I'm going to swear on myself. And he swore to Abraham, you know what? If you believe on these, if you believe on me, then you will have descendants as the stars in the heaven. And and Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And anyone who believes God and receives righteousness through faith, through believing, they are called in the New Testament, Abraham's sons. Okay, so that means the promise that was to Abraham for his descendants is to those who would believe 
Rory Rogers tonight. I put my faith in Christ. He is my redeemer. He is my hope. He's my confidence. And because of of faith, through faith in what he has done, I have an anchor for my soul. That anchor is personified in what we just read. He is someone who entered into the presence of the Holy of Holies behind the veil, which he tore, by the way. He's called the forerunner. His name is Jesus, chapter 6, verse 20 says. And he is our high priest forever. Not according to the order of Judah, or I'm sorry, not according to the order of Levi or Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek. And that just busts us into a whole chapter on this guy named Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who in chapter 5, this author said, I've got a lot to say about him, but it's hard to explain because you're dull of hearing. And so I want to give a warning to us tonight. Let's roll up our shirt sleeves. Okay, easy. Roll those babies up. Oh, wait, they're as high as they can get. Roll those shirt sleeves up, tighten your bootstraps, and get ready to, to, to grow, get ready to just exercise your mind, get ready to flip in your Bible. What, what is he saying? Where is he going? Okay, because if it was hard for the Hebrew kids who were raised in Israel, standing there on the Temple Mount, looking at the blood of the bulls and the goats, maybe perhaps even seeing the Son of God hanging on a cross, do you think maybe just a little bit it could be a challenge to us in Prineville tonight? Not if we have the aid of the Holy Spirit here, all right? The one who inspired this. So roll up your shirt sleeves, and by that I mean, God help me. God help me to care about this stuff. Because if you're like me living in America, a fast food society, an entertainment-driven culture, we shut off at a however many letter name this is, Melchizedek. Please just call the worship team up here to end all this misery, okay? Boo, says the kid that was baptized on Sunday. Okay. Now, Melchizedek, as we get into it, Melchizedek is a mysterious, intriguing character. Someone once called him a shadowy chap. He has a name that we're not too familiar with. I remember when I taught the book of Hebrews to my high school kids, I had them all, I challenged them all to learn how to spell his name. For what purpose? I don't know. He's mentioned nine times in the New Testament, and in all accounts, it's in Hebrews chapters 5, 6, and 7. Three places in the Bible total where we'll find Melchizedek. In Genesis 14, where we'll go in just a minute. Psalm 110.4, David writes out uh, about uh, this character Melchizedek. And here in Hebrews 5, 10, 6, 20, and 7, 1. The mention of this shadowy character or shadowy chap seems to appeared out of nowhere in Genesis chapter 14. And go ahead and flip back there. Genesis chapter 14, we've got three verses that refer to Melchizedek, then nothing. For a thousand years, nothing. Until David writes Psalm 110 verse 4. And he writes about, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then a thousand years goes by again, and we have the book of Hebrews. And somebody brings up Melchizedek. What for? Something that's incredible about this is that there's continuity in the scriptures. You've got thousands of years 
tons of different authors from all sorts of different backgrounds, just looking at this and studying this incredible, and that 2,000 years apart from each other, an argument is used about three verses in Genesis chapter 14. And these verses, this argument, elevates the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's an argument used to keep Jewish believers in the fold. That's an incredible thing. That's something that only the Holy Spirit can do. Beautifully, beautiful, the continuity of the scriptures. Now, Genesis 14, let's read about Melchizedek. It all started back when Abraham's nephew Lot was kidnapped by five kings from the north, okay? Uh, It says in verse 13, one who had escaped from uh, this captivity came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorites, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and all his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he gave him a tithe of all. That is, Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. Except the only thing that the young men have eaten. And the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, Mamre, let them take their portion. So, so interesting to read of this character, Melchizedek. And then we won't hear of him again till Psalm 110, verse 4. Who is Melchizedek? We read in verse 18 there that he is king of Salem. What does that mean, Rory? Well, Salem means peace, shalom in the Hebrew. He is the king of of peace. Well, that's interesting. What else did he do? Well, in verse 18, it says that he is one who brought out the bread and the wine. Okay. We also read in verse 18 that he was the priest of God most high before there ever was a priesthood. In verse 19, we see that he blessed Abram. The argument is going to be used in Hebrews chapter 7 that the lesser, Abram, was blessed by the greater, Melchizedek. He's one who also blessed God most high, who delivered the enemies into Abram's hand. And then we see in verse 19 that Abram gave Melchizedek a tithe of all of the plunder. Hebrews chapter 7 gets into this incredible character. 
If you'll flip there with me tonight, if you're still there, or coming back from Genesis 14, we begin to contrast two orders to show that Jesus Christ and his priesthood is superior than that of the Old Testament covenant dealing with the priesthood of Aaron through the tribe of the Levites. Jesus is better, to put it simply. You read in verse 1 of chapter 7, For this Melchizedek, and it almost repeats Genesis 14, King of Salem, or King of Peace, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Let's push pause there as we're in our readings. The greatness of Melchizedek's office and role and person is expounded here. Verse 1 shows us that Melchizedek has a greater ministry than that of Aaron. He has a kingly office, one that Aaron never had. He has a priestly office, we read here in B and C of verse 1, or the second half of verse 1. He's king of Salem. He's priest of the Most High God. He blessed Abraham. As priest, Melchizedek first blessed Abraham on God's behalf. Next, he blessed God on Abraham's part. There was a reciprocal blessing going on here, not a mere wish, but a legitimate, authoritative, and powerful intercession as a priest. Incredible, in Genesis 14, to see Melchizedek acting as a priest. He's, just, just, he's not just called a priest. He's acting as a priest between Abraham and God the Father. In verse 2 of Hebrews 7, it says, To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. First being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. And so it's great to have the author of Hebrews almost commentate on us, uh, for us, what these names mean. How incredible this guy is. He has a greater name, verse 2 is telling us, than that of the Aaronic priesthood. He is king of righteousness. That is his name. Hebrew, the word Malk of Melchizedek, Malk means king, and Tzedek means righteousness. So Malk, Tzedek, Melchizedek is king of righteousness. We're going to look in a second about who this guy could possibly be, and perhaps, and actually most certainly, to an extent, he is a type. There could be no better description of the one who was to be the fulfillment of the shadow in which he cast than Jesus Christ. He's not only the king of righteousness, but he's the king of peace, verse 2 tells us. Jesus Christ is known as the true prince of peace. The peace that he brings is a fruit of being the king of righteousness. Wherever the king of righteousness is, there is peace. And Abraham gave that king of righteousness a tithe of all. This king of righteousness. He, verse 3 tells us, is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. And so Melchizedek has a greater genealogy than Aaron, or the Levitical priests. 
And of course, this is all pointing towards the antitype of this type, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has a greater genealogy than the Aaronic priesthood. Jesus Christ is without beginning. Jesus Christ is without an end. He's without father and mother. Well, where did he come from? He had no genealogy. He had always been eternal. He has no beginning of days nor end of life. The FBI would have had a very hard time doing a background check on this Melchizedek guy. No parents, no birthday, no death date. A Levitical priest wouldn't have known where this Melchizedek had descended from. Now, if he's just a normal man that we read of, he would have had parents and he would have lived and he would have died. And perhaps Genesis is just saying all of these things to give us context about in comparison to the Levitical priesthood in which genealogy and ancestry was everything. You couldn't be a Levitical priest unless you knew who your dad was and you were a descendant from a Levitical dad. In fact, your mom even had strict qualifications as to whether you could become a priest, that you could inherit that office. Certification was placed at the genealogical registrar's office. You didn't get your graduation diploma until you had a good genealogy. In fact, after the Babylonian captivity, the book of Ezra tells us that there were a group of guys that came back and through verbal account, they knew that they were priests, that they were Levites, and yet they went to assume that role and assume that office, but everything that with their names on it had been burned up. Therefore, they were not allowed to take the priesthood, lest they defile the priesthood of God. So this Melchizedek is a guy that might be in the same boat as they. No birth certificate, no ID, no genealogical records. Couldn't be a priest. Melchizedek, sorry, buddy, you're out. In fact, for the Levites, who perhaps are Messianic Levites now, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're reading the book of Hebrews now, they knew that a priest could begin his, his, his function at the age of 25, and for five years, he would be like an interdisciplinary uh, priest among, them, among themselves. But when he turned 30, he could go in and minister to the congregation, but only for 20 years, and then he was done. After 20 years, he was a horse, horse put out to pasture, and he had to just wait to die. He was not an eternal priest. And so the writer tells a story here of a permanent priest whose priesthood never ends and is eternal, not here on earth, but in the heavens. They only knew of a priesthood that goes from age 25 to 50. So this priesthood must be from some other clan, must be from some other order. The priesthood of Melchizedek was not founded upon his genealogy. It was founded upon his personal dignity. There was no prescribed period. It went on forever. There was no end recorded for his office, for his purpose. And that is the purpose is mentioned for us uh, for Hebrews chapter 7 in comparison of Jesus in his high priestly office that also goes on forever, that also isn't based upon the tribe he comes from, but his personal dignity. Melchizedek foreshadows the superiority of the Jesus priesthood because Melchizedek's priesthood rested on the eternal dignity and Jesus' the eternal dignity of his sonship being the son of God. 
Not his genealogy is what matters, but his personal worth. This Melchizedek we read was made like the son of God, and he remains the priest continually, or forever, or from everlasting to everlasting. So who is this guy? Melchizedek mentioned in chapter 5, verse 10, hard to say, hard to say, hard to explain, you're dull of hearing. But now that the parenthesis is complete and we're in chapter 7, the author just says, well, we might as well get it over with, and I'm just going to try to explain it to you. Certainly is a daunting section. Some believe Melchizedek to be a personification of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Others believe he's a divine virtue with more powers than Christ. No, that's not true. Others think him to be merely an angel. Some think him to be uh, an actual person, a historical figure that is a type or a foreshadowing of Christ. That's an issue that some of us have never encountered in the scripture yet. And it's very exciting to go through the scriptures and to look at all of the types of Jesus, shadows of Christ that are then fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. He's called the anti-type, the fulfillment of all of those types in the Old Testament. Types in the Old Testament were classic means of illustrating the person and work of Jesus Christ. Numbers 21 is a great example where the children of Israel are bitten by serpents. And so Moses is instructed to create a bronze serpent and to put it on a wooden pole, a wooden stake, and to raise this bronze serpent up. And if anyone would look at the bronze serpent upon the pole, then they would be healed from their snake bites. But some people, they looked upon that pole and they were healed immediately. Other people said, oh, that is just so ridiculous. No, I'm not gonna look up there. No way. Oh, come on, you're healed. Look at all the other people around you that have been healed. No, no way. That is just ridiculous. So stupid. Look up on the... No. And Jesus himself tells us that that was a type of himself. And John chapter 3 says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We celebrated Passover for the first time as a church this year. And we remember that the Passover lamb is a picture, a type of the one who was to come. The one that John the Baptist looked up and said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the, of the world. Whereas the Passover lamb was an animal who was to be two years old, a male without spot or defect, taken among the sheep and the goats. The sacrificial lamb was a type that as the spirit is they spilt his blood, they would put it on the doorposts of their house. And any family that had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house, the angel of death would pass over and that family would be saved. That family would be spared. So too, anyone here in 2013 that allows the blood of the lamb to cover the doorposts of their house, their heart, will not perish, will not die, but have everlasting life. The type is the lamb. The fulfillment or the anti-type is Jesus Christ himself who spread his blood the precious blood of christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot and this is so necessary as we look at this type of melchizedek which i believe is at least a type which is a beautiful and wonderful thing this incredible type of the anti-type the lord jesus christ the uniqueness of all that's described in genesis 14 is exactly and in that order that it might be applied in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ himself. 
But I personally, I believe it actually goes a step deeper than this incredible truth of it being a type of Christ. I see it when I read it, and this is just my opinion, so don't die on it. I won't die on it either. But I believe it to be Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. I believe that what we read of in Genesis chapter uh, 14 is a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of the Son of God. In Micah chapter 5 verse 2, we read, That Jesus, and and this prophecy is quoted later on in Matthew about the birth of Jesus. Jesus is one who is from everlasting. You find many places in the Old Testament where the Son of God is a messenger to individuals. In Genesis chapter 16, right after uh, Hagar is treated harshly by her master, Sarah, she's she's cast out. And as she's cast out, uh, she's super distressed. And an angel of the Lord appears to her and counsels her and tells her to return to her mistress and submit yourself under her hand. And the angel of the Lord speaks to Hagar and encourages her that her descendants will be multiplied and counted for multitude. And beautiful, beautiful promises towards Hagar and her descendants. You know, we often think of um, the Muslims as just a, a scour upon the earth. But the culture, the people of the Muslims have great promises given to them. We just need to use those promises and point them to Jesus uh, and, and that th- they might be saved as well. But something that we see in this account of the angel of the Lord giving precious promises to Hagar is verse 13 in Genesis chapter 16 She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, or the angel of the Lord, or the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, I have also here seen him who sees me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahairoi. Observe it's between Kadesh and Bered. And so Hagar believed that the angel of the Lord whom she saw, wherever we see this capital A angel of the capital L-O-R-D, we can look at it and look at the clues to see this is Jesus showing up and speaking precious promises. In Genesis 32, we see that in a wrestling account with Jacob. At the end of the wrestling match, you know, they're wrestling and and uh, Jacob's hip is dislodged. Uh, you guys remember that, or dislocated. Jacob is holding on and, and won't let go. And he says, tell me your name, I pray. That's the old school way of saying, say my name, you know. And uh, no, it's, it's not anything like that. Uh, tell me your name, I pray, Jacob says. And the angel of the Lord says, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. And Joshua, just before the uh, walls of Jericho came tumbling down and that whole military campaign took place, Joshua's running around trying to seek the eyes of the Lord, trying to figure out what to do. And he comes upon this figure on the path with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua says to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And this angel of the Lord says, no. Not much of an answer, actually. He says, I'm for myself. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. I've come now, take your feet off your or take your feet off your shoes. Take your shoes off your feet, for this place that you're standing is holy ground. In Judges, Samson's parents in Judges 13, they are barren, and an angel of the Lord comes to them. And Manoah, Samson's dad, says to the angel of the Lord, "What is your name? When your words come about to pass, we have this kid. What's your name, so that we can honor you?" And the angel of the Lord says to him, why do you ask my name? 
seeing it is wonderful. And later on, after this account, and, the, and Manoah gives the sacrifice, and the angel of the Lord comes up out of the sacrifice, says he ascended in the flame of the altar, and Manoah and his wife fell on their face to the ground. Later on, Manoah says to his wife, we shall surely die because we've seen God. We've seen just God in the flesh. Who is that? Who is this appearance of God in the Old Testament? In Daniel chapter 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are cast into the fiery furnace, the, the king, after it's, it's cranked up seven times, King Nebuchadnezzar looks out there. He says, hey, how many people did we just throw into the fire? And they're all, three, my Lord, three. And he goes, then why do I see four? And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And I want you to remember that little phrase, like the Son of God. So this Melchizedek experience, I believe, is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 8, verses 56 through 59, when he's having a debate with the Jews, and he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. That's Jesus saying that. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to throw at him. They knew he was claiming to be God. And Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and he passed by. What do you mean, Abraham? Or you met Abraham. You're a young man. Many people take this phrase that Melchizedek was made like the son of God uh, to, to argue that that means he's not the son of God. And I just would point you to Daniel chapter 3, where scholars all agree that the fourth individual in the flames of fire, not all scholars, obviously there's people that would disagree, many Bible-believing scholars would say that fourth appearance there, that's, that's Jesus there. In the midst of the trial, in the midst of the fire, as people were standing up for his name. No one argues that that was the Son of God. What about Melchizedek, who was made like the Son of God? Look at the other descriptions. Who does it describe? Who else could it possibly be? A man who was a king and a priest. No other king was allowed to be priest. He was a king who had neither beginning of days nor end of life. He's a man who, was, who will be a priest forever. If Jesus was priest forever at the same time of Melchizedek, then there's going to be two priests in heaven. And some would say, you know, that... Uh, that uh, it's just there's no record of his death, and so typically that means that he's the priest forever. Okay. Powerful presentation here. As the author of Hebrews writes to the listeners, and in this epistle, he lays out a perfect picture of who, who the Messiah is. And like I say, it's at least a type of Christ. It's at the very least a type of Christ, a perfect picture of who the Messiah is and that he's better than Abraham and that he's better than the Levitical priesthood. Notice it was Melchizedek who brought out the bread and the wine. And when did he bring out the bread and the wine? In the time of extreme testing by other kings. We see Jesus is the one who brings out the bread and the wine when he institutes communion. Melchizedek blessed Abram. And then blessed God. Abram gave Melchizedek a tithe of all. This tithe is pre-law, I want you to know. We don't tithe because we're under the law, but because we understand he who is superior 
and we give back to the one whose possessions are already his. He's the king of righteousness, leading people who are seeking righteous lives, the king of peace. We can know peace through the blood of the cross. This is an incredible picture, incredible type, certainly good evidence that it might be a Christophany, could possibly be Jesus in the Old Testament. In verses 4 through 10, the argument is now made that that Melchizedek, who we want to look at as Jesus in this chapter of chapter 7, Jesus is better than Abraham. Now, these are arguments that aren't really familiar to us that would have been super familiar. Just as, as much as it's like foreign to us, that's how like native it was to the people who would be reading this letter. So, so kind of have that in mind because a lot of you here tonight, you're like, does any of this matter at all? It totally matters. It's just going to take time and work and labor to understand it and be prompted to worship God and glorify God in his, in his marvelous ways and his great planning and what he's done. But it's the same thing that we did back in our trigonometry classes and our calculus classes, you know, when we're like, look, I want to own a grocery store someday. Like, do I really need to learn all this stuff? And the teacher's like, yes, you need to learn it. You need to sit down and you need to be quiet and you need to like just take notes, okay? And the same thing is for us today. As we look at Melchizedek, or Jesus in Hebrews 7, who has a greater authority, verses 4 through 10, a greater authority that we read of here in verse 4, given by a, a historic account, consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Consider Jesus, the book of Hebrews says, how much better he is than Abraham. He's superior than Abraham. How great is this man? Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. In verse 5, indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they've come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And so the Levites who were serving in the temple all day long couldn't have land, couldn't raise crops, couldn't own livestock. In fact, they were commanded to receive a tithe that they might be able to live. Now Melchizedek, he wasn't from Abraham's lineage or Abraham's loins, and yet not even a Levite, yet he received a tithe from Abraham, the father of it all. Verse 7 tells us, now beyond all contradiction, the less is blessed by the better. So after this great Melchizedek received 10% of the spoils, he then blesses the lesser individual who is less, uh, who, who's greater, I should say, than Abraham on this earth. The blessing would be a ritual blessing here that fathers would bless their sons or a blessing from prominent to less prominent people. The lesser Abraham is being blessed by the better Melchizedek. Verse 8, it says, here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. How amazing is this? Just as we see that the, the fulfillment of Melchizedek, perhaps Melchizedek himself, lives. 
He, and he's still alive today. And Revelation 1.18 tells us, Jesus, he says, I am he who lives. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So this Melchizedek received tithes, and it was just a proof that he would be living. Verse 9, even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. I love that. I love that, you know, everyone who was a Levite is like, dude, did you know you paid Melchizedek a tithe? I never met Melchizedek. I never did anything like that. Well, guess what? Your dad did it. You did it through the loins of your dad, all right? That's just how God looks at things, all right? Jesus is the only priest who would be alive forevermore so that those tithes would always perpetually have been given to him as the greatest. He has this indestructible life. This is so important for the Jews to see because you got to remember, they were brought up to depend upon the ceremonial law. They've depended upon the sacrificial system. Any chance for their sins to be atoned for had to go through the blood of the bulls and goats. And then they hear the gospel preached by the apostles and they change and they repent and they recognize, no, it's the blood of Jesus that's the fulfillment of it all. And now they're struggling and they want to go back. And they're remembering just all of the pomp and they're remembering all of the elements of Judaism. And, and they were great, but they were just a shadow in comparison to their fulfillment, Jesus and his kingdom. And so he tells them, man, don't look back. We do have an altar. We do have a sacrificial system took place. We do have a different kind of incense. We have a priest, and he's so much better and so much greater than the ones that you used to know. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He was greater than Abraham. Just picture him arguing this. He's greater than Abraham. In fact, Abraham tithed to him. And the Jews would say, that's, that's true. In fact, all of the Leviticus bestowed blessings on Melchizedek through the loins of Abraham. Oh, that's true. And this is the one that blessed Abraham. And it's always the greater one blessing the lesser. Well, that's true. This is all arguments to show how great Jesus' priesthood is. And how superior it is to the Levitical. The Levitical priesthood is exceeded in verses 11 through 28. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law... What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? And so the Levitical priesthood is exceeded and showed as imperfect here in verse 11 and even down into verse 12, showing that there was the need for a different priesthood that came from a completely different order. Galatians 2.21 says, I'm not going to set aside the grace of God in vain, for if righteousness came through the law then Christ died in vain. Anytime we want to go back to the law in a works-based system of righteousness, it nullifies, or it, 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 it um, proclaims a nullification. Uh, of course, it doesn't actually nullify the death of Jesus Christ and its power. Hebrews 8, in one chapter over, verse 7 says, if the covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second new covenant or the New Testament. So just the fact that there's 
um, a new priesthood and a new covenant shows us that the old, the ones that, the, that these Messianic Jews were tempted to go back to, that it is obsolete. He's going to say that actually later on in the book of Hebrews. Verse 12 tells us, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. The law and the priesthood were, you know, bedfellows. They stood and they fell together. So his answer to those who would object, what need was there for a new covenant, was that, well, there's a new priesthood. Uh, there's a new covenant as well. Verse 13 shows us the evidence for an imperfect Levitical priesthood. He of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. We know that to be the tribe of Judah, right? Of which no man ever officiated at the altar. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing about priesthood. And so we see here that Jesus is right, was not from ancestry, but personal dignity. The Levitical priesthood was temporary, and Jesus surpassed the Levitical priesthood with his own priesthood by his indestructibility. We read in verse 15, and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life, for he testifies, this is David testifying in Psalm 110 verse 4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18, for on the one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. So Jesus Christ surpasses the Levitical priesthood by his indestructibility. We see in verse 16 the word better being used there. Uh, in a sense, the, the old covenant was a law of a fleshly commandment, but the new covenant, and we're going to see more about the covenants later on in Hebrews, uh, the new covenant is that according to the power of an endless life, verse 16 says. Verse 18 at the end says that that former law, the former commandments, was weak and unprofitable. Weak and unprofitable? You're talking about the law of God there. And we got into this back in Romans chapter 7, remember, where the author, Paul, he says in Romans 7 that, that the, I, I bear witness that the law of God is good. It's good and it's profitable. But in the whole chapter 7 of the book of Romans, you see that sin takes the law and uses it as a launching pad for all kinds of depravity that's just as bad as any paganism that you can think of. And it's sin that couldn't fulfill the law, the weakness of the flesh. In fact, Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak in the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So the law was unprofitable because nobody could ever keep it. It was given as a tutor to show us that we were sinners in need of the one who would come and keep every jot and tittle of it. Its weakness and unprofitability came through the men who couldn't keep it. But Jesus came and fulfilled it all, brings about a, a new covenant, a new testament. He surpasses the law and, and the covenant by his accomplishments, verse 19 tells us. 
For the law made nothing perfect, it says. Law made nothing perfect in the book of Romans. I think it's Romans, isn't it, that tells us that by the works of the, of the law, no flesh will be justified. By the works of the law, no one will be found right before God. The law made nothing perfect, verse 19 says. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Do you catch that word better? I always want to circle that in the book of Hebrews. There's a better hope through which we draw near to God. We have that better hope promised and established by the oath of God. In verse 20, inasmuch as he was not made a priest without an oath, verse 21, for they become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety or a guarantee of a better covenant. And we'll look at that better covenant next week. But this oath, this oath that we read about over in chapter 6, the oath that the Lord swore to Abraham, he swore by himself because he could swear by no one greater. This oath, his word and his covenant and his word, it makes it so immutable. It makes it so unchanging as if you even need it anymore from an unchanging, unchanging God. Then he swore on top of it and spat and shook hands in a sense. He swore on the greatest name. When you think of that old hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There's a verse in that old hymn that says, his oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. Why does any of this matter? Boring Hebrews chapter 7. His oath to you. He swore on it. He pinky swore on it. He swore on his own name. Not only did he say it was going to happen, which is his word, but he swore on it. And at the end of chapter 6, he swore that anyone who would believe like Abraham would believe would have, a, would have an anchor for their soul in heaven. That anchor is personified as the great high priest, Jesus Christ, the forerunner of the faith, our assurance of our salvation. If you would believe on it, he swore by an oath, and he said it, that you would be saved. Here, it's the same thing. He said it, and he swore upon it. And because he has an oath, and because he has a new covenant that is sealed on something way more precious than the blood of bulls and goats, he sealed it in his own blood, we'll see next week. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. He's the best. He's better. Rest in him, trust in him, relax in him. Reckon him to be true. Reckon his righteousness to be imputed into your account. The word reckon, it's used in the book of Romans. Reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. It's an accounting term where you're reckoning your books and you're saying this has happened. In the same word, you are to impute his righteousness to yourself by faith. That happens when you believe upon him and you need to reckon it to be so. Jesus Christ's priesthood is established by how long it lasts, we see in verse 23 and 24. It is a permanent priesthood, just like the shadow earlier, Melchizedek, had an eternal priesthood. 
is a singular priesthood, verse 23 says. There were many priests, as you read the Old Testament, and we remember it from our fasting week, do we not? Because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. The priesthood of Jesus is better because it's eternal and it's immutable. It's unchanging. It has a greater ability, verse 25. Therefore, he's also able to save to the uttermost or save completely or save forever. Who does he save? He saves those who come to God through him. Those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What does Jesus do in heaven right now? He's praying right now. He always lives to intercede for you. Right now, and now, and now, and now, and now. He's praying for you. He's praying for you. Lately, I've just been praying more. Lord, pray for me right now. Lord, intercede for me. Come to the pulse tomorrow, Lord. Pray for our church. Intercede for us. He always lives to make intercession. Isn't that encouraging? Because Romans chapter 8 says, who is the one that condemns you? It's not Jesus. If you're in Christ, Jesus doesn't condemn you. He is at the right hand of the Father. And it says he died and he's risen. He's at the right hand of God and he makes intercession for you. So God's not damning you right now. Jesus isn't damning you right now. You're in Christ. He's praying for you right now. He's for you right now. He's your defense attorney right now. Chapter 9, verse 24 of Hebrews says that Jesus has appeared in the presence of God for us. For us. Even now he's selfless. John tells us that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus' priesthood is established by his character in verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is, here's his character, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. It's established by his sacrifice in verse 27. Who does not, he doesn't need to daily, as those high priests, offer up sacrifices first for his own sin, and then for the people's. Remember, that's how the Leviticus priest did it. He had to make a sacrifice for his own sins. Because he sinned, he had to get that taken care of so that then he could go into the Holy of Holies and make uh, an offering for the people. No, Jesus did all that once for all when he offered up himself. Doesn't need to happen every Mass, as our Catholic friends believe, that literally the priest turns the bread and the cup into the blood and the body of Jesus Christ and he sacrificed 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 and he sacrificed. And you think of how many times that happens every mass. That's not what the book of Hebrews tells us at all. The book of Hebrews tells us exact opposite. He was sacrificed. He sacrificed himself. Didn't need any other priest because he was the priest and he offered up himself one time for all who would believe. I love this because it tells us that the potency of a cleanser is measured by the number of applications needed to get out the stain. My friend once told me the story of a blue 
sheer laundry detergent salesman. This man was a door-to-door laundry detergent salesman, and he would go, and he would knock on a door, and he would say, excuse me, ma'am, have you heard about this fantastic product? It's called Blue Cheer, guaranteed to remove any stain. Do you happen to have anything at all that I could wash this morning? And she's, well, yes, my son just got off of soccer practice. His, you know, his jersey is just completely grass-stained. Let's try it out. And so he grabs the jersey and he dips it into the blue cheer and he says, wash, 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 scrub, scrub, scrub. Looks so clean, smells so fresh. And she bought 20 boxes. And he goes across the street to the next house and he says, ma'am, selling blue cheer, do you have anything at all that I can wash? Why, yes, my husband spilled a glass of red wine on our nice white tablecloth last night. Do you think it could take it out, man? I'm absolutely certain of it. And so he, she gets, he gets the uh, white tablecloth and wash, 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 scrub, scrub, scrub. Looks so clean, smells so fresh, sells another 20 boxes. Goes across the street, knocks on the door. Man opens the door, looks like someone we might call a bit of a redneck, you know. He's wearing a white wife beater shirt, barbecue stain, you know, all sorts of yellow and grubby. Sir, I'm selling blue cheer detergent is there anything that I could wash to prove to you it's cleansing power? Well, yes, I've got this nice white tank top on. Could you, you think it could clean it? Yeah, sir, blue chair can do anything. Wash, wash, wash. Scrub, scrub, scrub. Looks so clean, smells so. Wash, wash, wash. Scrub, scrub, scrub. <laughs> the potency of the cleanser is measured by the number of application it takes to get the stain out. How many applications of the cleanser did the blood of Jesus need? One time, once for all, once for all of men. He doesn't, he doesn't um, stay on the cross. You know, I see the crucifixes and the body of Jesus still on it. I just want to say, you know what? He's not on there anymore. He's off the cross. And guess what? He's not in the grave either. He rose from the dead and he ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father, not on the right hand of the Father. And he ever lives to make intercession And if you apply his blood to your dirty, nasty, barbecue-stained heart, you'll be forgiven. Your sins will be washed away. And not only will they be washed away, they'll be forgotten, the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west. The Levitical sacrifices were offered perpetually, and they never got the dirt out. But Jesus was offered once and for all. And one application of the blood of Jesus is all it takes to remove our sin. Verse 28, and we'll close. We can have the worship team come on up now. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the son who's been perfected forever. Haven't we been learning that so far in the book of Hebrews? Jesus is better than the angels because he became a man. And he knows by experience the suffering that happens on the earth and the temptations that take place. And yet he never sinned. Other high priests, they were sinners who had to offer up sacrifices for themselves. But the Son of God who came in the flesh, though he was tested, never sinned. And he was proved actually to be strong and to be sinless. The hymn, Rock of Ages says, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone.
man, may we be oh so careful that we don't have the temptation that the Hebrews had here to go back into Jerusalem and begin sacrificing animals again. We still default to workspace righteousness so quickly that it's what I've done that gives me standing in heaven or performance-based righteousness that, oh, now I'm good with God and now he's pleased with me because I did this and this. I read this Bible passage this many times today. I did this and that. Man, nothing that we can do could fulfill the law. It was fulfilled by our great high priest who's legit, came through the order of Melchizedek and he offered himself up once for all He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And let's just thank him tonight as we worship. Maybe you came in here tonight and you never believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You've never put your trust in him for salvation, that you would be found right before him Perhaps every time you've come before the Lord, you've said all kinds of different works and all kinds of different accomplishments that you've done. You've set those out on the table and said, Lord, look what I've done. Come on, give me a little bit. I, I can, come on, I can come in for a little while. I can, come on, just admit you're, you're pleased with me. Look what I did, come on. And the book of Isaiah tells us that our best works on our best day are like filthy stinking rags before his holiness. And he would speak to you this morning, get your works off the table and let me put all of my works on the table. I did it, I fulfilled it, I was perfect, but I suffered a consequence that belonged to you. So that if you would believe in me, all of my good perfection that's sitting on the table right now, I'll put it into your account. So that when God the Father looks at you, it's like he's looking at me. It's foolishness to bring your piddly little efforts and set them on the table before the God of the universe who is perfect and holy, sinless and spotless and powerful and he knows everything. Get those things off and receive all of his goodness, all of his perfection, all of his rightness through faith. Faith is the conduit that these blessings from God come from that salvation comes from, that forgiveness comes from. You gotta have faith like a little child. Just believe in what you've heard today. Lord, we wanna glorify in you tonight. We wanna glory in you. In your sovereignty and your planning, Lord, that clear back in Genesis 14 in the Valley of the Kings, there was a, a, a figure there named Melchizedek. And only you know, we'll know someday if that was actually Jesus showing up or if that was a historical figure. But Lord, how incredible that you planned that out so that 2,000 years later, a group of people who were tempted to go back to a bunch of works and systems, they'd be able to see the fulfillment of that shadow. So good and so right, so perfect. Lord, may we behold him today. Would you apply it to our hearts in 2013, Gentile, Oregon? You're our high priest, Lord. You've grafted us into the nation of Israel, Lord.
Lord, those that believe. And you've made this awesome nation called the church. And Lord, your church worships you. And your church thanks you for being our high priest. And your church receives your intercession and receives your thanksgiving, Lord. We're thankful for it. Would you do that for us? The depths and riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become his counselor? And who has first given to him that he should repay him? For of him and to him and through him are all things. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.
tonight and just the barrier of sin that's before you, just that you see just as a great wall between you and God. And you just think there's no way that God would forgive me of that and that and this. And gosh, it's just I'm the biggest sinner that's ever lived. Hey, because Jesus is our high priest and because of the sacrifice that he's made, he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who through faith would come to him because he ever lives to make intercession for you. Just surrender to the Lord Jesus tonight. Just come through faith to the Lord Jesus. Just let him wash away your sins. Let him make you a new creation. Let him transform you by his power. Let him pray for you tonight. love to welcome you just into just being a disciple and just living for Jesus Christ. We'd love to just come around you and just encourage you and teach you here at Calvary Chapel. We'd love to just uh, just help you to continue steadfast in this faith that you've operated, that you've shown tonight. We would love to help you continue steadfast to the end you to stick around afterwards and come and talk to me and get you started on that beautiful life of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done here tonight, Lord. Just the prayer of Kevin tonight, just, just feel like I'm never going to fully, fully understand. Lord, would you just give us minds to just begin to comprehend what we've heard tonight, just growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. In your name. God bless you guys. Stick around in fellowship. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.